So, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE. For those of you who aren't from here, it's always great to see people from outside the university. My name is Ricky Burdett, and I'm the um, head of uh, a center, research center called LSE Cities, uh, which was started 12 years ago uh, by support from the Over Arab Foundation. And we'll come back to that um, in, in a moment uh, to explain, in a way, why we're here and um, uh, my colleague Richard Harriet will talk a little bit uh, about that after me. Uh, this is the third in a series of uh, lectures which looks at the uh, intersections between infrastructure, design, cities, and sustainability, uh, which have been funded by the OVAR Foundation. And uh, it's wonderful to have Joe De Silva here. I will introduce her in a little bit more detail in a moment. I want to say just a couple of things. One is, can you please switch off your mobile phones? You have them on. Um, the structure of the evening will be that Joe will speak with an illustrated talk on the subject of response and resilience um, and the role of the engineer in sort of situations of risk and crisis. Um, she'll speak for about 40 minutes and then we'll have an occasion for questions uh, from uh, you from the floor. We'll sit here and have a discussion uh, about that. Um, I just want to add one thing is that this for us is a very, very important uh, sort of intellectual position uh, to be able to have engineers come to the London School of Economics uh, and talk about one of the biggest uh, issues and uh, uh, which is how do you make cities and urban environments or environments generally sustainable uh, and uh, when we talked about this probably as I say 14 years ago with the uh, Oer Arab Foundation the notion that a center uh, of excellence uh, which the LSE is in terms of social science should be actually embracing uh, these more technical issues was really quite new uh, and I'm delighted to see that we're still here after that uh, time to be able to continue this discussion. So um, can Richard, will you come and tell us a little bit about the OER Foundation then I'll come back and introduce the, Joe. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ricky. Uh, and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the uh, OVARAP Foundation, as we can say, is sponsoring this lecture, the third in the series. It's a public lecture, which is, excuse me, is important to us. Uh, and uh, it's lovely to see you all here. Why is this... Uh, public lecture important to the foundation. Why are we sponsoring it? Well, the mission of the foundation, its purpose, if you like, is to encourage, to promote uh, knowledge and education in the built environment. And we like to do that, particularly if there is some emphasis on the interdisciplinary, the pan-disciplinary nature of design between architecture and engineering. And actually beyond those core disciplines, if you like, to reach out to economics, the social sciences, politics, and so on. And we like, if possible, to have also the, that, uh, that uh, promotion of knowledge to reach out to uh, the general public to beyond just the practitioners and so on. And so that's why this 
lecture is important to us. And it's very nice, I think, that it should be held here at the LSE because the Ovarat Foundation has a, uh, a long-standing and fruitful relationship with the LSE. Uh, as Ricky has said, uh, we provided the initial, the catalytic funding, if you like, that allowed the LSE to launch the city program. I can't remember how many years ago it was, Ricky, but he'll know that too. How many? 14, 14 years ago. And uh, uh, the impacts, the outcomes of that have been, in our view, very impressive. Uh, very good first-class students attend the course to read a high-pressure master's, you know, some of you here, no doubt. Uh, and equally, or more importantly, <coughs> alumni of the course, graduates of the course, are now in positions of influence and authority in all over the world in the imagining, the planning, the design, the construction, the operation, the use of cities, large and small. Uh, and very importantly, I think, it enables uh, people who use them, who, who are influenced by them, to create wealth and well-being for society at large. And so I very much hope that you enjoy the lecture. I'm sure you will. But I very much hope also that you go away from here influenced by it and able to influence the direction uh, that uh, city planning and so on takes in the future. Thank you very much. So Joe is um, going to speak about this important subject, which, as I say, relates very much to what we're looking at more broadly here at the city's program. And really, there are very few people who can do this with the sort of breadth of um, global experience that she has, which we'll see in her talk, but also the depth of understanding of what it means to be an engineer in situations of, of crisis, effectively, and what an engineer can bring to it. I mean, her CV is really quite extraordinary, but I'm not going to go into the technicalities in many ways of being an engineer at Arabs, the world's leading engineering firm. That's already uh, something which is significant. It's, that, it's fascinating that she actually set up within this firm the international development uh, section, which is a not-for-profit organization, which I'm sure you'll describe what it does. But her passion and interest effectively for humanity, not just for uh, infrastructure and, and uh, risk, is demonstrated by becoming involved with the Rwandan genocide, um, becoming involved with the aftermath of Hurricane Mitch, um, and construction of 60,000 shelters, 60,000 shelters in Sri Lanka uh, following the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Uh, that just gives you an idea of the sort of real hands-on action that she's been involved in, and therefore can address this issue, uh, which you see in the title, that we need to, in many ways, as people involved in design, management, policy-making in cities, shift our uh, thinking from response, resolving the problem after the crisis has happened, to actually designing systems which are much more resilient. And I think this notion of resilience 
to all of us, whatever background we come from, whether it's uh, to do with so uh, in the context of sociology and in the context of design, resilience and allowing that sort of um, uh, capacity in the system to d deal with shocks of the sort is absolutely important. Uh, she has many uh, accolades. She was made an OBE a few years ago for her services uh, to this world. She's a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and many other accolades. But Joe, thank you for joining us at the LSE. So please come and join us. And can you welcome her? Thank you. I'm just going to prevent a disaster by fixing this. Hopefully that will work. Um, thank you very much um, for that um, introduction. Um, I am an engineer. Um, people are sometimes surprised I'm an engineer. Um, with a name like Joe De Silva and being female, um, if I speak at some forums, they expect a Brazilian man. So I hope you weren't expecting a Brazilian man tonight to give this talk. Um, the talk I'm going to give is actually... Um, the talk for the Institution of Civil Engineers Brunel Lecture Series. Every two years, the Institution of Civil Engineers invites an engineer to give a talk on a subject of global interest. And then that lecture is given at various venues around the world, primarily to engineering audiences. Um, and I was um, lucky enough to be invited to do this um, and accepted because I felt that perhaps I had something important to say. Um, because I'm passionate about disasters. And I'm passionate about disasters because I've seen the impact of disasters firsthand. And the way that natural disasters <coughs> devastate communities. Um, they kill huge numbers of people, they remove infrastructure, and they cause enormous amounts of suffering. And so often the reasons for those disasters could have been prevented. And as an engineer who also designs infrastructure, I'm very well aware that the, the disasters are increasing and being caused by the built environment we are creating. And yet, at a global level in terms of global policy, when disasters are debated, the urban issue is only just getting onto the agenda. So I feel that this is the absolutely a critical time to raise the importance of urban disasters. Now, when I started saying this two years ago, we hadn't had a hurricane in New York. We hadn't had floods in Brisbane or Bangkok. We hadn't had Haiti. And what I was saying was considered to be a bit radical, not very polite, a bit depressing. Um, now it's something that I think you pick up the newspapers and you know, every year, every six months, there have been um, urban disasters. Uh, the um, world that I can just get the hand of this one. No, to point it at that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so my the lecture is called "Shifting Agendas from Response to Resilience," and that's really about. Uh, stressing the need for a more proactive approach to thinking about natural disasters and the impact on the human population and what we can do as um, engineers and built environment professionals in designing uh, urban spaces in particular 
to mitigate the risks. Brunel himself, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, was a 19th century engineer and he primarily worked in the UK. Uh, we don't have significant natural hazards in the UK in the way of hurricanes, <coughs> earthquakes, volcanoes. Nevertheless, we've seen our aviation system come to a standstill because of the volcano in Iceland. We have floods that have an increasing impact year on year in Britain and the London underground system struggles with snow. So we're not immune to nature actually being a disruptive force. And anyone who witnessed, has witnessed devastation caused by big events like the earthquake in Haiti or in Sichuan in 2008 uh, or the Indian Ocean tsunami knows that actually nature has the ability to decimate communities. Nevertheless, there's actually a tendency to perceive engineers, planners, built environment professionals, professionals as invincible. The thought is that we can keep nature out, just as we take for granted the fact that we turn on our taps in London and water comes out. But these aren't actually 100% true. We believe that cities are some of the safest places on earth, and we believe that when disaster strikes... There are organisations like CARE and Oxfam and the UN who will go and mop up the mess. But of course all of this is only partially true and those are some of the issues that this lecture explores. So I've, I've sort of structured it in four parts. Uh, I want to begin simply with some facts and figures to ground us in the realities of this issue and then talk about the trends and the issues that I think are going to shape this agenda over the next few decades. Then the shifting agenda from response to resilience and what this actually might mean, particularly what this might mean for built environment uh, professionals. So the first point, if you don't remember anything when you go home this evening, is that it's a significant issue. Every year natural disasters cause death, damage, destruction and human suffering. They affected about 2 billion people over the last decade. They cause economic losses of about $100 billion per annum. And that's the whole of the equivalent to the whole of the infrastructure budget for Africa, or double the GDP of a country like Sri Lanka. And flooding is an increasing problem that is affecting very, very large areas. In Pakistan in 2008, the floods covered an area the size of Italy, which is, you know, is huge. But it's actually earthquakes that are the deadliest hazard still, and this is despite enormous advances in earthquake engineering. But the sad reality is that earthquakes don't kill people, buildings do. And although in countries like the US and Japan there have been great strides in terms of earthquake engineering, which means that very significant events can happen with very small losses of life, um, and that's because codes of practice have been introduced and enforced, in most parts of the world, codes of practice don't exist. If they do exist, they're not enforced, or there's corruption which compromises them, or simply there are poor, um, poor standards of workmanship um, and poor materials. We saw the building collapse in Bangladesh. It wasn't even an earthquake, which just you know, brings to light uh, some of these issues of construction standards. But the reality is also that the majority of buildings in a lot of countries aren't engineered. They're actually not designed. 
So we actually have to think about how do we influence building practice to make it safer, not just how do, how do we design things uh, to be safer. But the reality is that, the, that there are cities and towns all around the world where there are seismic disasters waiting to happen. Kathmandu, the east coast of Africa along the Rift Valley, where there are significant cities and yet seismic design practice is not even part of the discourse um, in terms of regulations and standards. But leaving earthquakes, the hazard issue is chiefly climatic in terms of the numbers of people it affects and in terms of trends. Uh, Floods, storms, droughts, heat waves happen every year and each year more and more people are affected. The question mark on this graph is because I gave this talk in America where there is still some debate about whether climate is causing these trends. Uh, But the IPCC brought out a report last year, the SREX report, which is clear that actually climate is um, causing changes in the weather patterns that are increasing the uh, magnitude and frequency of extreme events. But of course there are other factors, including environmental degradation, urban development, um, which are also contributing to the fact that hydrometeorological disasters are on the increase uh, worldwide, but particularly in Asia. The issue of disasters hit the global agenda in the 1990s, so it's not a new issue. The difference is that in the 1990s, what was driving the debate was concern about um, the loss of hard-won development gains. So it was the development community worrying that poorer countries that they'd invested in were getting hit by disasters, Hurricane Mitch and uh, the volcano Montserrat, and that was actually setting back the development clock by years and decades as money was diverted to mopping up the mess from the disaster rather than, than continuing Um, with development and economic growth. The difference today is that the debate is being fuelled by the rising cost of disasters. And it's causing a concern for governments, business and the insurance industry alike. In 2011, just in the Asia-Pacific region alone, losses peaked at nearly 300 billion US dollars. The Japanese earthquake and tsunami was the most costly disaster ever, And the flooding in Bangkok, in Thailand, affected global supply chains. It brought Toyota's production to a halt as far away as Venezuela. The global uh, cost of hard drives went up by 10% because so many hard drive manufacturers sourced their components in Bangkok. And reinsurance premiums temporarily peaked at 12% and then settled back down to between 1.5% and 3%, which is still double the amount that is normally, um, normally in place for, for insurance. That's in the flood-prone areas of Bangkok. So this has put natural disasters for the first time on, on the agenda for major businesses. Um, and having just gone back from de- delivering this lecture in Malaysia, in Hong Kong and Bangkok, you know, this is very real. Um, and, and people are feeling, you know, what do we do? Um, this is actually affecting our business. And it's going to affect the decisions of uh, companies, whether they actually invest in cities. Um, there's a lot of effort um, or initiatives being announced at the moment in terms of, you know, resilient city indexes, 
um, measuring resilience. And a lot of these, not the one that I'm actually working on, but a lot of them are driven by, uh, by firms wanting to know, are cities vulnerable um, in terms of our decisions about whether we go and locate there? But whereas mortality rates and economic losses are used to describe disasters, um, the real cost of disasters is felt at a localised level on statistics that are very personal in terms of loss of friends, families, homes, possessions, school days, um, as well as damage to ecosystems and cultural heritage, which can have a really wide-ranging impact on a community. Um, it doesn't take much imagination to think what the loss of schools in Sichuan meant after the earthquake in China in a country where the, each family only has one child. But even in countries where there isn't that form of population control, a school gets wiped out and you lose a generation, and that's a productive generation who are going to contribute to the economy of that community. In, even in high-income countries, um, insurance and government compensation are only a partial safety net. Uh, a good example of this is in Christchurch in New Zealand, where the earthquakes that happened there in 2010-11 were actually much worse than had ever been predicted in Christchurch. And it's really remarkable that the level of damage that was sustained was as low as it was. But... The learning from that is that the buildings that were damaged and need to be uh, re repaired or, or rebuilt need to be built to a higher standard, and the insurance premiums don't cover that. And Christchurch, because so many buildings were damaged, even if there was fairly low loss of life, the centre of Christchurch is still dead. Economically, the heart has been taken out of the city. So we can't think about the design of buildings as individual isolated um, elements within a city. We have to think about the design of all the buildings in the city and bring them all up to a standard where there isn't going to be damage. And we tend to design buildings in cities to be life safety critical, which enables people to, to leave the building safely. But if they can't go back to the buildings because they're really badly damaged and are going to take two or three years to repair, you've actually killed off... Uh, the, the economic heart of the city. Historically, um, disasters were thought of as rural issues. Um, but they really, disasters only happen if you combine the natural hazard with people. And because we are in an urban world now where more than half the world's population live in cities, disasters are increasingly becoming an urban challenge. The number of disasters is increasing. The complexity of disasters is increasing. They're frequently occurring in areas which are prone to conflict. Um, I was in Sri Lanka following the tsunami. The tsunami was a natural disaster. But the fact that there was a civil war in the north of the country and had been for decades was uh, an existing situation. And the efforts to respond to that disaster had to be overlaid on the complexity um, of the conflict. In 2011, when the, uh, shortly after the current government came in, they commissioned an independent review of DFID's policy and approach to humanitarian response. Um, I had the privilege of sitting on the senior advisory board that was chaired 
by Lord Ashdown. And there were some very eminent people from uh, the European community, uh, from Scandinavia, from the UK, who, whose 24-7 uh, job was disastrous. Um, I was representing some of the views of the private sector. Um, the conclusion of that review, which was a very thorough six-month process, was sobering. Um, it was simply that we're facing a race between the growing size of the humanitarian challenge and our ability to cope between humanity and catastrophe. And at present, this is a race we're not winning. That review looked at the capacity of NGOs, of UN organisations in the development sector, the new money coming out of countries like the BRICS countries that is being used in these situations, and, in, um, and the potential role of the private sector. And it looked at the, the, the trends in disasters um, and just said these two, there's a mismatch between the two. And that we need to have an approach which not only focuses on increasing the effectiveness of humanitarian response, but actually looks at a paradigm shift to building resilience. But in my opinion, that review didn't dwell sufficiently on the urban challenge. And that is true, um, was true last month at the global platform in Geneva, which is where countries worldwide come together every two years to discuss this issue in the context of the HIOGO framework. Modern cities are not immune to disasters, and in fact, due to their locations, many of them are extremely vulnerable. Uh, this photo is of uh, New Orleans um, after Hurricane Katrina, and I think starkly illustrates the impact of flooding, not just as a spatial issue, but also as a systems issue in terms of taking out major transport routes that provide the arteries to the system, to the, to the city, and electrical substations which kill off the power within the city. And many of the things that happened after uh, New Orleans also happened in New York last year during Superstorm Sandy. You know, and there wasn't an excuse of failed levies um, as there was in New Orleans. But this picture could be of flooding in Brisbane, it could be of the floods in Bangkok, it could be the flooding that happens every single year in Jakarta, or it could be the city of Malabon in the Philippines, whose future is tenuous and its residents are migrating out of the city because they actually can't see a future. And the mayor is saying, I can't see a future for my city because I flood regularly. So natural disasters can, can cause cities um, to collapse. There are three issues, I think, that we have to think about if we're thinking about natural disasters in cities. The first is exposure. Um, it's a simple fact that more people are living in urban areas. Therefore, if there are natural hazards in those locations, there are greater numbers of people affected. Cities comprise a lot of physical asset a lot of physical asset is affected, which will result in losses. But the, most of our cities are actually highly exposed to natural hazards. They are located in vulnerable positions for historic reasons, because they, communities wanted to form uh, near the sea because of trade routes, or rivers because of trade routes, or in deltas because there was fertile ground, likewise on the side of volcanoes. So we've actually got a sort of situation where the places where most of our cities are are not 
where you would choose to put them if your starting point is natural hazards. The second thing is where is urbanisation happening and the, the pace that urbanisation is happening. This poses a major, major challenge because governments just simply lack the financial resources, effective governance, or often the political will to actually provide the infrastructure and services that will support and protect a growing population. So some of the solutions that have enabled cities like London or cities like Tokyo to exist in terms of large-scale defensive infrastructure are just not, are not things that are really going to happen um, in, in these cities um, in the short term. Um, the result of this rapid urbanisation is also unplanned urban development, and that is characterised by poor quality buildings, um, infrastructure deficits, and deteriorating ecosystems. All those three things, infrastructure deficits, poor quality buildings, and deteriorating ecosystems, were raised in a report last year as key factors, the top three key factors in affecting disaster risk in urban areas. And to just again take the example of flooding, it's things like runoff from new developments, which we've t begun to tackle in this country with suds and the need for attenuation. Destruction of coastal ecosystems, which is probably going around the world the thing I notice most. Generally, a road that has taken out the man coastal road that's taken out the mangroves, um, destroyed the dune, and we're just destroying these assets that are natural defences. Inadequate watershed management, inadequate investment in stormwater drainage. And then that's exacerbated by no solid waste management. So waste is dumped in drainage channels. Even if they're the right size, they're blocked when they actually need to function. And actually, simple schemes that encourage ownership of the drainage channels, where people, um, you know, local people living around, actually get employment from keeping the drains clear have proven effective in, in reducing risk. But there are other issues such as illegal water extraction, for groundwater extraction, causing subsidence, which is a big issue in coastal areas in Asia. And overlaid on that is, is, is sea level rise. At worst, when it comes to flooding, this leads to chronic water logging. And then that produces a whole load of secondary hazards in terms of vector-borne diseases. I was in Gorakhpur in India last year on a programme that we're working in, talking to communities there who have lived with flooding as a regular event um, for, for, for many years. But from their perspective, it has suddenly got significantly worse. And in digging down into this, it's simply that the floodwaters now stay around for several weeks whereas in the old days, the water receded every few days. It might have come back, but it did recede. And so they had adapted, they would developed quite sophisticated coping mechanisms to deal with the fact that they were living with water, um, you know, that was surrounded by water. But every few days, they could go and restock themselves with potable water, whereas actually, when the water doesn't recede, you're cut off for weeks on end. And then, of course, poverty an increasing proportion of urban populations are poor, and that's the main cause of vulnerability. Um, already 95% of disaster-rated deaths occur in developing countries, and by 2010, it's anticipated that something short of a billion people 
will be living in slums or informal settlements. Um, and these are typically on marginal land, which is highly susceptible to flooding and landslides. They've got limited access to basic services, and they also have very little political, political voice to change their circumstances. And a major challenge for us as planners um, and engineers and for governments or decision makers is how do we actually make decisions in terms of urban investments that positively address the needs of the, these 900 million people? Cities and urban disasters, I think, present a really big shift in thinking how, about how we approach what's typically known as disaster risk reduction, uh, commonly referred to as DRR. Um, DRR typically re- operates in, in this realm. It looks at natural hazards, it looks at vulnerable groups, uh, poor people, elderly groups in the Mediterranean with heat waves, and it looks at the intersection of that space. And that's it. But when you come to cities, you have to think much more broadly because the natural hazard can actually affect the urban system. As I mentioned earlier, taking out a power supply or a transport link. And that can then have knock-on implications on vulnerable and not-so-vulnerable groups alike. But it means that even a fairly remote disaster from the city can actually affect the urban population. And of course, with cities being centres of um, industry and economy, a disaster in a city has very far-reaching implications um, on the region. And there's some interesting work being done in Australia about the implications of the Brisbane floods um, on, on that province. The complexity and the dynamic nature of the urban areas Um, creates a real change because it means it's much harder to foresee the consequences of a natural hazard event and much harder to respond effectively when they occur. The approach that's underpinned disaster risk reduction to date um, in terms of the built environment has been one of uh, predict and prevent. Let's think about what disaster might occur, predict who it will affect and how it will affect them and then do our best to prevent or mitigate the consequences. Uh, If we don't know how cities are going to evolve and and expand, if we don't really know how um, the the disasters, what disasters are going to happen, we're struggling to to, to continue to follow that um, logic. Um, And of course, this is further complicated uh, by climate change. Because overlaid on the complexity of urban environments, we have to deal with the uncertainty posed by climate change. Uh, The experts predict, and I think that's probably the World Bank, that climate-related disasters could affect up to 365 million people a year by 2015, which is a 40% increase since 2010. But the reality is this is speculative, because scientific consensus over future climate change scenarios and projections doesn't exist. And anyway, it will vary considerably depending on our ability to reduce global greenhouse emissions. Climate change mitigation is vital, but it only addresses global risk. And we have to think of the impact of climate change at a local level. Um, And those impacts are already being felt by thousands and millions of people worldwide. Um, This is one of my most favourite diagrams. It comes out of the IPC's SREX report 
And I like it because it puts on one page the whole of the climate issue in terms of mitigation and adaptation. And it is a continued frustration of mine that these two conversations operate too often in separate camps. Um, and so what you see here, greenhouse gas emissions, is caused by development. It's caused by the built environment and industry. That is fueling more weather and climate um, events, which is increasing disaster risk. Theoretically, that same development could reduce exposure and reduce vulnerability. But at the same time, these events are, can also increase vulnerability. For instance, water scarcity. If climate change is resulting in more drought and there's water scarcity, people are more vulnerable. So this is a, this is a, um, a diagram that, that, that for me brings the whole um, agenda together um, and is useful in trying to talk to governments about the need to mitigate emissions but also to address their issues which are frequently less abstract than reducing greenhouse gas emissions. They're also considerably more complicated um, because adaptation is trickier because it's context specific. Um, I would argue, some would disagree, that uh, reducing emissions is a one-horse pony centred around that one issue and it's centred around energy. Adaptation involves health, it involves education, it involves access to water. It it involves social and cultural preferences. And it is very, very um, context-specific. The dilemma that we have with climate change and the uncertainty is that we're not able to foresee, with a meaningful degree of accuracy, the severity of weather-related events over the 50 to 100-year lifespan of new infrastructure. So we're designing blindly. And for an engineer, this is very scary because we like our codes of practice. We like our statistical projections of the probability of wind, a certain wind, a 50-year wind or a 100-year wind. And that's what we're used to designing to. And that's what traditional risk management practices are founded on um, that have underpinned urban planning and infrastructure investments to date. They tend to be hazard-specific and they're based on the probability and consequences of particular events occurring. The implication is that they produce rigid designs, which, if they're based on those criteria, um, if those criteria are exceeded in the future because the the events that we're facing get worse, um, they risk failure, and at worst, catastrophic failure. So we need to be designing to allow for failure, and I'll come back to that point um, later. So, moving on in terms of, I've, I've outlined some of the, the, the now in terms of the current disastrous profile, where I see some of the challenges going in the future. Um, and I want to talk now about the shift from response to resilience. Um, and this is my way of, of, of understanding it for myself. The reality is that the word resilience is just being used everywhere um, with very little understanding of what it means. And um, unlike when sustainability uh, began to be mainstreamed, Brunkland came up with her definition and then there were models like the three capitals, five capitals model, or the triple bottom line that articulated it in an accessible way. We're not there yet with resilience, although there's a lot of effort going into trying to get there. 
Just to ground the conversation, let's think of a real place, a real disaster that happened not so long ago that combined the challenges that I've just spoken of. Haiti, the poorest country in the Northern Hemisphere. It was a city, is a city. It was Port-au-Prince that suffered most. Um, That's where the majority of the population lived. And the hazard it faced was an earthquake, but the reality is that part of Haiti's problem is that they've had been increasingly hit by cyclones. Um, And in fact, they were very severely hit by cyclones in 2008. The earthquake that hit them was a magnitude 7 earthquake. 300,000 people were were killed. The last significant earthquake had been in 1842. So earthquakes weren't even on their agenda. People in Haiti had no awareness that that was a risk at all. The risk had been magnified because of urbanisation. In 1842, the majority of people living in Haiti lived in lightweight timbered structures. Um, Now there are no trees left in Haiti, so everyone builds in masonry or reinforced concrete. Only what they call reinforced concrete there doesn't resemble reinforced concrete here. Um, It just is missing a lot of the reinforcement. Um, In Chile, there was an earthquake that didn't feature so heavily in the headlines only a few months later. It wasn't magnitude 7. It was magnitude 8.8. Less than 1,000 people were killed. The singular difference was that in Chile, very few buildings collapsed because they'd had an earthquake in the 1960s, had introduced building codes, and those codes had been reinforced. I don't think it's a coincidence that Chile has just joined the OECD. And there is therefore a link between economic growth and investment in quality infrastructure. We have to look at Haiti and say, is it a one-off? And the answer is no. I spent a year in Sri Lanka after the Indian Ocean tsunami and then was very involved in Aceh doing consultancy work and then in Pakistan. The same situations apply. I arrived in Aceh 15 months after the tsunami. The rebuilding process of housing was well underway. No one was thinking about seismic risk. The tsunami was caused by an earthquake. People had forgotten that fact. The earthquake that caused the tsunami was off the coast of Indonesia. Banda Aceh itself actually sits on a fault line right plumb on the centre of a fault line that runs through the whole of the centre of Sumatra. And the earthquake that's predicted in Banda Aceh is a 9.6, which is as big as the big one in San Francisco. Yet, despite the UN agencies there, all the aid agencies there, lots of international experts and advice, no one was thinking about seismic risk. Fairly astonishing when Teddy Bowen is an Indonesian based in Jakarta who is one of the world's most eminent seismic engineers. Even more astonishing when there's a university in Bandarache, where I went to visit, there was an engineering department and two highly competent engineers who knew everything that anyone needed to know about seismic. Uh, I asked them why they weren't involved. They said that UN Habitat had been speaking to the architecture department. Um, Anyone who has operated in a university in either the architecture or the engineering department knows that there's not very much dialogue between them. (laughs) Um, And this just goes to emphasise the importance of interdisciplinary um, exchange. The situation in Haiti followed a traditional pattern. Uh, This is Haiti 
on its development path in blue. And there were things going on in Haiti around disaster risk reduction, preparedness and prevention. They were focused on hurricanes because that was what the perceived risk was, hazard specific risk. The disaster happened and the first phase of response is relief. Relief is fantastically important and whatever you read in the newspapers, the humanitarian organisations are phenomenally good at it. The purpose of relief is to prevent further loss of life after a disaster by providing food, medical care, shelter, water, sanitation. And it's incredibly effective in situations like Sri Lanka after the Indian Ocean tsunami. 500,000 people were displaced by that tsunami. After that tsunami, one person died that didn't die actually in the event. And that was a child who set fire to their tent with an oil lamp because they managed to get help between the Sri Lankans themselves with support from the international community. They managed to get the assistance that was needed to half a million people. In recent years, there's been more and more emphasis on the importance of recovery. And that is because people realise that actually your ability to recover from a disaster depends very much on how quickly you get back on your feet and how life returns to normal. Um, And then the amount of money that was available following the Indian Ocean tsunami actually meant that for the first time ever, really, um, NGOs, UN agencies, the development sector started doing reconstruction. They were perceived as the trusted partners because they were charitable organisations or the UN. But in fact, they had very little, if any, experience of how to build. And instead of forming partnerships with engineering organisations or architectural organisations, the majority of them just hired in an architect, very occasionally an engineer to help them. Um, And that some of those architects were in their mid-twenties and they were being put in charge of buildings projects with 400 houses. It's another disaster. Um, And these are key issues that um, we need to address if we're actually going to build back um, more safely. I drew that last diagram in blue and green, and the colours follow through, because the reality is that the humanitarian community operates here in red, and built environment professionals operate here. If you talk to engineers and planners, they say, yeah, we we understand disasters, we do things, we reduce risk, we create land use plans that have zoning on to to prevent disasters, We, we we build buildings safely. But the reality is these are two worlds. And the change with resilience is... is recognising the need to bring these two worlds together. Resilience emphasises local action and the need to build local capacity, and this requires sustained action throughout the disaster management cycle. So the paradigm shift, I think, with resilience is the integration of these two agendas and these two worlds, and it is also moving the agenda from international response to local understanding of risks and empowering local community to understand the risks they face and um, be able to act when shocks and stresses occur, which they inevitably will. Unfortunately, this term resilience is poorly understood and there isn't a common accepted definition. It's one of the most pan-disciplinary terms I've ever come across. Uh, some of our research has gone back to understanding the roots of resilience that emerged in the 1970s from ecology. 
but it's been used in psychology, in disaster risk reduction, in many other fields. Um, and there's a colleague of mine at University College London who does a very funny presentation for a student with about 20 slides at the beginning um, with the word resilience on, taken from various places, including face cream for uh, middle-aged women. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a term that has been used, it's a term that's been abused. Um, but to try and find a way of explaining it, um, I did this word cloud on a whole pile of research documents that we'd reviewed and was reassured that the two most important aspects of resilience uh, come out very, very clearly, which is the ability of complex systems to absorb significant change and disturbance while maintaining the critical relationships that enable the system to function. So in the context of a city, which is quite clearly a system, it's the ability of the city to continue to support the well-being of its citizens, to continue to be able to provide the enabling environment that enables business, businesses to flourish. Um, and that's how I conceive uh, urban resilience. When someone says to me, what does urban resilience mean? That's what it means to me. It's to enable people, the well-being of the urban populations, and to enable businesses to continue to flourish. Inherent in the notion of resilience is the acceptance that disruption might occur and result in significant change, but you don't get total breakdown. So the other way I look at resilience um, in simple terms is it's the opposite of collapse. If you have something that is not resilience, when there is a shock or a stress, you will end up with collapse. If it's resilient, it will recover and continue to operate and be able to continue to function and perform uh, the role it played previously. Um, it's a very different approach, really, to traditional disaster risk management, which is focused on preventing particular, particular events occurring, so dikes to avoid flooding, vaccinations to avoid disease, um, or to mitigate the consequences. Um, building resi resilience focuses much more on local awareness of hazards, reducing vulnerability, and enhancing the qualities and capacities of communities and their assets so that they can cope with a whole range of shocks and stresses. Um, I was explaining this to Jenny Baster, who is Arab's, uh, uh, head of Arab's legal department, or she retired a few weeks ago, and she said, Joe, I get it. It's actually what we try to teach our children. We try to teach our children to be resilient, to be able to cope with adult life. We can't predict the ups and downs that they are going to face. So you can think about resilience as an attribute of an urban system, um, and you can then start thinking about proxies for, for um, measuring resilience um, or characterizing resilience. And out of the research, uh, these five uh, characteristics feature very strongly. Um, so redundancy, flexibility, safe failure, but also the ability of systems to recover after a disaster um, and the ability of communities to learn and to adapt their behaviour so they are better placed next time around uh, to deal with the next shock or stress uh, that comes along. We've also conducted research at a community level um, and we must remember that 
uh, cities aren't just comprised of physical systems, they're also made up of, of people and communities. Um, and this was researched, the first phase was conducted in four cities in Asia and then three, uh, four countries in Asia and uh, then three countries in Latin America in a total of 58 uh, cities. And it came out with the characteristics of a resilient community were found, the foundations were individual knowledge and health. Um, but that was only uh, effective if they were part, those individuals were part of a community that was well organized and able to take action. And that that community was connected to other communities where, from whom they could seek additional help. In addition to that, was the quality of the infrastructure and services that they had access to, the diversity of economic opportunities, and um, their ability to make best use of their natural assets. This uh, research actually was mainly done in a rural um, environment, but we're testing it in, in an urban environment, and these themes are, the same themes are coming up in urban environments that there is this issue of assets in terms of economic, physical, and uh, environmental assets. But on the other side of the coin, there's the human capital in terms of knowledge, in terms of the ability to organize, and in terms of, of wider connections. And I think that that then poses interesting things are coming out of that in terms of the role of IT um, and transport um, as being fundamental uh, components of resilience. Some people talk about building resilience. You can't, how do you get there? Where do you start? How do you seed a new agenda in cities? Um, this is findings coming out of work that the Rockefeller Foundation have been doing in 10 cities in Asia, um, which is that local champions are critical to seed the agenda. Diverse stakeholders, peer-to-peer -peer knowledge exchange, and most importantly, building on the now issues. So instead of talking to cities about climate change or about resilience, which are uh, uh, fuzzy concepts, to actually understand the challenges that cities are facing and then see how one can weave climate change or resilience into that agenda. Um, interestingly, I have just done some work which, which illustrates that these issues are very, very similar to the issues that were encountered 10, 15 years ago with the early efforts to um, introduce sustainability onto urban agendas. And I think there's a lot of learning about how to build and seed and mainstream resilience in cities to come from uh, the efforts that have gone on um, on sustainability. Where does this all lead? Where are we going? Um, we're at a very crucial moment because the Hyogo Framework for Action, which was signed in 2005, which brought the world together around this agenda, um, runs out in 2015. Um, it's not getting as much publicity as the fact that the Millennium Development Goals also need to be uh, replaced or refreshed in 2015. Um, but there is a lot of thought uh, going on, and there is recognition that that something needs to follow on from the Hugo framework for action. The midterm evaluation thankfully recognised the importance of the built environment um, and it highlighted three areas where further effort was definitely needed, which related to infrastructure projects, safer schools and hospitals, 
and addressing urban risk, making cities resilient. And you and ISDR have a whole Making Cities Resilient campaign um, in terms of where, that they've been running for a couple of years now in terms of raising awareness of this agenda. But perhaps the reason that those three things are priorities which need further effort is if you do a word search on the report, there is no mention of, urban, of engineers, nor is there mention of urban planners. And if you go to the forums um, that you and ISD have to convene thought around this subject, those communities are notably absent. Um, I've spoken to them about this, and they say the problem is where, you know, how do they engage? They, they're not sure where the entry point is. Um, and I'm trying to encourage um, institutions like the Institution of Civil Engineers to actually be the conduit and the entry point um, for that policy dialogue. Um, the economists are always there. Uh, the insurance companies are always there. And um, when you have a conversation with some of the people from the insurance companies about their motivations, the losses that they've paid out after events like the Bangkok floods are staggering. And so they are very, very highly motivated to participate um, in the dialogue. Trying to think ahead and think positively about what all this means, I came up with seven things that I will just rattle through, which are thoughts about that I think that we as built environment practitioners need to think hard about if we are going to contribute meaningfully to this agenda. The first is simply to recognise the important role that engineers play. Um, the authors of the Hyogo framework criticised engineers and planners as being one-dimensional and thinking about the risk to their projects rather than the opportunity their projects afford to reduce risk. Um, and this uh, photograph illustrates it rather nicely. It's a bridge, um, a raised uh, road in Kinon in Vietnam. Um, it was designed because that area of the city flooded very badly. Uh, whoever designed it failed to recognise that actually it creates a barrier that has significantly uh, made the flooding worse in other areas of the city. And this is a very good example, I think, of, of sort of thinking in an isolated way um, about individual projects rather than thinking about the role that projects can play uh, in, in changing the risk profile um, around them. Uh, one of the best examples of, of how, this is, how, how this new approach has been mainstreamed is the notion of build back better in post-disaster situations, which was a phrase coined by President Clinton. Um, but it's really, it's not just about building back more safely, i.e. building buildings that won't fall down in the next um, earthquake. It's actually about using the building experience to train local people, to introduce safe practices, to locate schools um, and design them in a way that they can be used as shelters during hurricanes, to formalise land rights, to introduce basic services, uh, to create new structures of ownership over the urban environment where people are more proactively engaged um, in their locality. The second thing is a systems perspective rather than a project perspective. Um, most designers love projects. They are well-defined. They have a beginning, they have a middle, they have an end. Uh, the weakness of designers is that they tend to think about outputs, not outcomes. And we need to move 
from a project-by-project project basis to thinking about whole, whole systems. Um, I think that's a fundamental sea change that has to start with the education of planners and engineers um, and architects. Uh, spatial risk assessments are not enough uh, we need, in an urban context. We need to, to think about the systems that weave through uh, the city and the cascading failures that, that might apply. For instance, the loss of function of a power station might actually affect the water supply distribution. The closure of a transport hub will have impact, wide-ranging impact on flows of goods and services. Um, and there's very limited research currently being done um, in this area to really articulate it. Some of the most interesting conversations I had was actually with people here um, who were responsible for keeping London going during the Olympics um, you know, and the flows of goods and services that needed to, to make the Olympics operate but also enable the rest of London uh, to operate. And the whole concept of urban management um, I think, um, you know, relates to, to thinking about resilience and how you keep cities performing and functioning. Um, part of systems thinking has to include ecosystems. Um, I like to call, to refer to ecosystems as the blue and the green infrastructure in our cities. Uh, there's some fabulous work being done in Durban about valuing ecosystems in terms of the role they play in reducing flood risk, um, in providing nutrition in the city, contributing to potable water. Um, but again, we tend to think about grey infrastructure, the concrete, the steel, the buildings, the, the hardware, um, and forget the value that the natural ecosystems provide. We need to think about a new culture of safety that actually acknowledges um, uncertainty. Uh, we can't control nature, and engineers simply are not omnipotent. Um, events where engineered systems fail are rare, but they can be catastrophic, and we saw that um, with Fukushima in Japan with a nuclear power reactor. Uh, we saw it in New Orleans following the failure of the levees um, in Hurricane Katrina. Um, we have to accept the fact that we're living in an increasingly complex world. The future is more and more uncertain. There's therefore a greater possibility that design criteria will be exceeded or poor quality materials or workmanship or something else may compromise the design intent or a scenario will occur that we simply didn't envisage. So we have to design for failure and contemplate failure um, and because we can't assume that we can design fail-safe systems um, all the time. We're very clever. We build tall, beautiful skyscrapers in some of the most vulnerable areas of the world. Uh, this is a picture of a 60-storey tower in Manila, Manila which has got an incredible system of dampers um, to make the building viable. We live in a city here in London that is protected by a whole complex web of infrastructure, but notably the Thames Barrier, to protect us from flooding. But these high-tech engineered solutions require substantial investment, substantial technical and institutional capacity to implement, operate and maintain. And if you go and... Uh, live in some of these cities, visit these cities, that doesn't exist. The money doesn't exist, but the technical capacity, the human capacity, and the institutional capacity doesn't exist um, either. So even if we built these, um, these types of barriers, would those cities be able to continue to operate, maintain and run them? You know, when they're at the early stages of, the, of rapid urbanisation. Um, alternative strategies are really necessary, um, and I advocate 
that they're strategies that need to rely on the cumulative impact of multiple smaller interventions. Uh, The report on the right is is work that uh, we did with the C40 um, in Ho Chi Minh, um, and that's a low-lying Vietnamese city where they were proposing another massive dike on top of all their existing flood defence systems, but hadn't actually considered an integrated approach that looked at water supply and flood management together and looked at the role attenuation of water could play, how the role the introduction of green spaces could play, the importance of sustainable urban drainage. Um, The the value of of these cumulative smaller-scale solutions is not only can they be more readily implemented, they can be more readily adapted um, as situations um, change. Codes of practice, land use planning, are absolutely critical, but they are not the end end or the be-all. They can also create a moral hazard because they isolate individuals and organisations from a true appreciation of the risks that they face, whether they're living on floodplains or buildings designed for a particular level of seismic risk. Codes and standards are also only effective if they're part of a wider culture of safety that includes engineering education, construction skills, legislation um, and enforcement. And in many, many countries, one part of that jigsaw um, is is frequently missing. Um, And anyway, as I said earlier, in so many countries, codes and standards don't exist or are out of date. I mean, even in somewhere like Indonesia which is highly prone to seismic risk, and they have a very comprehensive seismic code. It excludes single-storey dwellings. That's all houses, that's most shops, that's all schools, that's all the uh, community-level health centres are not required to be designed uh, to any code of practice at all. It's just excluded. And then you look at the engineering education system in Indonesia and engineering graduates don't study seismic engineering in their undergraduate degree. It's only if you go and do a master's, which you know, is, you know, is, is clearly not going to create a, a, a culture of safety that we need. Um, and I think we put too much store by codes of practice, and there are numerous examples of investment in codes of practice which then just sit on the shelf because they're too complicated. They can't be used by the people who need to use them, whether it's the planning department or engineering department. And I think then alongside codes of practice, we have to put emphasis on safer construction practices um, and looking at the way local people build, whether it's informal settlements in cities or you know, in community, rural communities, and actually look at how they build and how can the way they build now be adapted and improved uh, to make it safer, rather than trying to get to a, a level of safety that's defined in a code, um, which which then, um, you know, you can defend. Um, This was illustrated very starkly to me following the earthquake in Pakistan. This is uh, Daiji Dwari construction. It's found all around the world in seismic prone areas. Um, It's proven empirically to perform extremely well in earthquakes. And after the Pakistan earthquake, um, there were many buildings like this one still standing. It's just timber bracing, cross-braced every bay, um, infilled with rubble. Um, However, none of the international donors would fund reconstruction um, in this form. And I had an email exchange last week saying the same dialogue is currently going on on the Indian-Pakistan border. The reason they wouldn't fund it is because there isn't a code of practice for it. 
So they didn't want to fund something that they, there wasn't then an, um, a liability chain uh, that, that, that could be justified. Uh, Kubilai Hitchlemaz, who is an extremely bright uh, structural analyst um, who was out in Pakistan at the time, decided that he was going to uh, tackle this challenge. Um, he used the most sophisticated structural analysis software that exists to model this form of construction. I know that it's sophisticated because it, the program takes eight minutes to process, which in this day and age is a long time. Um, and he teamed up with the University of Peshawar, who had a physical model of the same stretch, and the two results correlate very well. So we are able to understand how this behaves, um, which is the first step in terms of maybe getting to building, building guidelines um, or a code of practice. Um, and we're trying to persuade people that, that this is an approach um, that is worth taking. Similarly, in Haiti, stone masonry is a vernacular form of construction. There is no stone masonry code um, in the world. So you can't you know, introduce, uh, reintroduce stone masonry as a, um, as a form of construction. I mentioned earlier the need to improve the effectiveness of humanitarian response. And if disasters are going to be more urban, then there has to be a way of forming partnerships that combine the ability of humanitarian organisations to engage with civil society, you know, those affected, with the programme and project management skills um, and the technical expertise um, that exists um, you know, amongst the communities who, who conceive and design cities. Um, you know, Haiti has proceeded as though it was uh, a rural problem. There has been no strategic urban plan for Haiti. Um, and, you know, if the LSE had been invited to Haiti immediately after, you know, I could picture a, a Google map with, you know, a whole analysis of Port-au-Prince. Um, that kind of analysis um, has unfortunately never happened. Um, finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to do much, much more to create the business case for disaster risk reduction. Um, and th this is a gaping hole in terms of case studies. Um, it is beginning to emerge. I heard in Bangkok that there are real estate developers who are advertising their buildings as being flood resi um, resilient or in flood resilient areas of the city and seeing that as a marketing opportunity. Um, there are certainly businesses now worried about insurance premiums. Um, but this is a story that I think gives a clue as to the more creative thinking about the business case that, that we perhaps need to explore. Um, the picture is of a factory in Turkey, um, which belongs to a Japanese manufacturer. Being Japanese, um, he realized that seismic risk was to be taken seriously, and he instructed his engineering company to design him a factory that was not only life safety critical, but operational critical, so people could go back into that factory um, you know, within days of a major event, and he could continue to make his cars. Um, in 1999, the earthquake happened. The fault line is the black line on the picture. So, you know, they were right there. The factory performed as designed, um, and you could have started making cars the next day. Only there was an oversight by everyone, because you need people to make cars. Uh, those people lived in poor-quality housing a short distance away. Uh, they'd lost their houses. They'd lost friends, relatives. And the last thing that was on their mind was returning to work. Um, the owner of the factory uh, was the person who 
proposed the fact that he'd forgotten an essential component of his business case. Um, thinking about business continuity um, is, is a key entry point, I think, for, for getting the private sector and business engaged in this agenda. Um, and the collapse in ba- Bangladesh has certainly put uh, business reputation um, on the agenda um, for several businesses as well um, in terms of their facilities. So those are my seven um, starting points um, for further discussion and debate, uh, not necessarily this evening, but I hope with people who attend this lecture and listen to this lecture. Um, I want to end by uh, bringing us back to uh, sustainability. Um, I was very involved 15 years ago uh, in Arup, uh, trying to mainstream sustainability in everything we do. Um, At the time the thought that we had to worry about environmental concerns on top of all the other things we were worrying about, um, some people thought was pretty challenging. Um, I look back to then, then compared to now, and I'm completely amazed um, about how far we travelled. Um, it was a very, very steep hill that we were pushing a very big stone up, but as everyone's learning grew together, the gradient of that hill um, evened out. Um, I think resilience is going to be as, if not more important than sustainability, um, as the implications of climate change, finite resources, um, you know, play out. Um, and I think thinking about collapse, whether it's due to natural disasters or social collapse, um, and thinking about resilience um, is, is, is fundamentally incredibly important um, for all of us as we go forwards over the next um, decades. Um, my final slide is borrowing... Um, from Kofi Annan who summed it up far better than I could by our actions we either compound disasters or diminish them thank you thanks very much we have um, opportunity just for conversation and a few questions. There are microphones, uh, so when we get round, please tell us who you are. Uh, that, that would be good. Can I just ask you one, one uh, thing? I mean, you, you nearly <clears throat> said in passing, right at the beginning, uh, you, you, you talked about the fact that more people killed in earthquakes, for example, other natural disasters, simply because of the combination between the natural context and, and built form, whether cities are which is something which, you know, for you is obvious, but the mere fact that actually an earthquake actually could kill nobody unless the buildings were badly built and collapsed and uh, squashed people, or that flooding could actually be fine <laughs> if the buildings were built to uh, withstand uh, that level of sort of pressure by water and everything else, is, is something which, you know, I think we need to uh, remember. The, que- I, the question I had, and perhaps you want to come back to this later, is that, in many of the bullet points that you talked about, which are very precise, very helpful ways of, in a way, rethinking uh, what we might do, in the back of my mind, and obviously that's because we're here at the LSE, is politics, governance, who decides. Uh, and you know, many of the sort of scenarios that you described, who would ever be in a position, perhaps in exactly the sort of countries or cities or regions that you're talking about, be in a position to make a decision about codes, for example, or uh, other things? And I, this is not a generic question, so in your experience, because you have very hands-on experience in these areas, 
has governance itself, just the system of governance, been as part of the problem as everything else? And do you feel at all optimistic about the way things are going? <laughs> That's a number of, of, of big questions. Um, the, um, the, the, politi the politics side is, is hugely important. Um, you know, my, my lecture is very much tailored uh, for an engineering audience. Um, if I'd gone into the, the political side, um, oh, it would have gone for another hour. Um, the, the work that has gone on in um, these Asian cities for the Rockefeller Foundation on their Asia Cities Climate Change Resilience Program, um, it's ten cities in four countries, Vietnam, Indonesia, Indo India and Thailand. Um, and what's become very apparent there, the governance issue has, is fundamental. Um, and it's the relationship between the city governments and the national policy agenda. And it's whether there is a national policy agenda that relates to any aspect of this, such as climate change risk. Um, how that then trickles down in terms of relationships between local government and uh, national government and how that relates to funding streams. Um, and so in the final phases of that program, a lot of emphasis has been put on engagement with national policy and influencing national policy. The other thing that's come out of it, which I think is very important, is that it's very unlikely that additional money is going to be available for, you know, for resilience. And therefore, the entry points are very much in terms of um, existing planning processes um, and existing investment in infrastructure. Who's making that investment you know, varies from, from locality to locality. If you look at a lot of the African cities, um, you know, the, the, the big pieces of urban development are private sector funded um, or Chinese um, funded in many cases. It's not the uh, multilateral funding that is actually making the biggest difference, but that's not necessarily true in some of the Asian countries. Um, so I think, I think it's very important, the mapping of the relationship between city-level governance and national mm. governance, um, and really looking at the funding flows into cities is, is, is fundamental. Um, one of the other interesting points is in Surat, um, on that program, mm. there's a very strong private sector. Surat is in uh, Gujarat, in northwest India. It's one of the fastest growing cities mm. in India and has a big diamond industry. Mm. It's also suffered the plague and severe flooding, so it's very disaster aware. And it's the Chamber of Commerce in that city is that is playing the most significant role in driving this agenda. So, some questions. <clears throat> so, the lady over there and then. Yeah. Tell us who you are, please. Thanks very much. Uh, Lily Ryan Collins, I'm an infrastructure advisor at Difford. So, thanks very much for your talk, Joe. Very much enjoyed it, as always. Um, I've got a sort of broad question which actually you've started to touch on in your response just then and uh, also a quick observation. You used the word we a lot in your presentation and I'm just wondering if you could go into, as I say, you started to touch on this, but a bit more how you see the role of domestic governments, uh, donors, the private sector, possibly civil society, again a broad question, um, in uh, sort of starting to tackle this, uh, these issues that you've outlined. The second is just a very quick observation. There was a talk um, at the LSE recently with Paul Collier on, uh, on, on uh, urbanisation. He made the point that uh, using codes of practice from the UK and Africa has made the formal housing sector in cities in Africa completely unaffordable for standard citizens and made the point that we need to develop codes of practice 
for buildings and cities in Africa that are appropriate for the local setting. So I think that's very interesting in the, in the way that that links in with the point you were making about um, codes of practice being appropriate for local conditions as well. Thanks. Two questions. Um, I apologise for the we. Uh, it, it is partly because I've been doing this lecture uh, for the engineering profession, for the Institution of Civil Engineers, um, and to them. And so the we is sometimes collective in terms of the engineering profession, uh, which I am part of. Um, I think probably in other cases, some of the examples of I'm using work were examples of work that Arab has done, and therefore the we may have been um, Arab. So I apologise um, if there was confusion um, in that respect. Uh, so, so I've been very much thinking about the role of, of the engineering profession and extending that to built environment professionals, architects and planners. Uh, but they can only operate within an environment that is created by governments um, and by you know, local governments, but also uh, the international community in terms of government. Uh, so organisations like DFID... Um, I think play a fundamental role in, in this agenda. Um, I think you know, DFID are not an organisation that has historically put a lot of money into delivering infrastructure, but they have a lot of influence in terms of how some of these uh, uh, debates uh, play out. Um, and I think there is a real need to get much more cross-sectoral dialogue between uh, the international community um, the private sector practitioners, um, um, you know, economists um, and built environment professionals to actually move to this debate forwards. It's very much an individual silos depending on what, what forum you're, you're going to. And I would really like to see over the next few years some much more mixed forum um, debates uh, on this issue. Uh, I have an enormous respect for Paul's Collier's work. Um, he and I were both on the Today programme um, after Haiti um, arguing for um, a strategic approach to Haiti. Uh, he was arguing from an economic perspective and I was arguing from an urban planning perspective. Um, I can't comment precisely on, on his comment about UK codes in Africa. Um, if you go to African countries, uh, the codes are typically, the local codes, are sometimes based on UK codes, sometimes based on French codes, <coughs> quite often based on the UBC, which is an old American code. Um, they are frequently, almost always, out of date. Um, and the problem that happens is you then get whoever is funding the project or possibly an engineer who has never worked in that country. And that's happening more and more because engineers have been trained in the UK and most of their careers have been in the UK because of the downturn in building here, you're getting engineers working overseas. They're not aware of these risks. They're not aware of that a code might not be appropriate. Um, and so they do what's easy. I've got, to, I've got to justify this design to some basis, so I will justify it to this code. So on, on projects overseas, and depending on the type of building, um, you have to think very carefully about what code is appropriate. Uh, and it has to be tailored for the local building typology. Um, we're currently in the middle of a project to update the code for the Turks and Caicos Islands, which was hit by Hurricane Ike in 2008. You know, and that process is very much trying to create a code that matches the types of things that are going to be built. Uh, they want to base it on the international building code, which is the American code, which is this thick. And you know, that's never going to work. 
Other questions? The gentleman over there, and then microphone over there. Thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, Joe. It's working. I can't hear. Yes, it um, is. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I guess my comments a bit more. Challenging. Can you tell us who you are? I. Who are you? I'm Robert Cochran. I'm uh, an engineer by regional training, but thank I you. also studied economics at LSE, and I've spent most well, of my life in, in developing countries. Um, <laughs> I went to Kobe after the earthquake. All the major structures were designed by leading consulting companies. They all fell over because they did not have sufficient resilience against lateral forces, and they were built on sensitive soils. And there was a cover-up afterwards. Um, Fukushima, I worked on a, an international group looking at risk over the last year. Um, the standby water pumping supplies for cooling could have been very easily, at very little expense, put on small hills just behind. They were not, and the disaster would not have happened if that had been done. Um, on the west coast of Japan, and we're talking about a sophisticated country here, which is known to have tsunamis and earthquakes, there is a line of atomic power stations on a fault this has been known for about 15 years, and the seismologist who pointed it out was publicly ridiculed by engineers. We have a responsibility. New Orleans. One of my friends did the risk analysis after New Orleans. He said it was a disaster waiting to happen because of bad engineering. But is there a question? There is indeed. It's what's the responsibility of the engineers? Because a lot of the problems we've had have actually been the result, it appears to me, of bad engineering, mm -hmm. not as a result of disasters where engineers have not been called in to assist. Thank you. Um, there's a number of um, those examples um, touch on a number of, of different points. Uh, I raised in my talk the, the issue of the need to, to think about safe failure because however uh, well-founded engineers' intentions are, um, they are increasingly being asked to design ever more complex structures and systems um, in an environment that is changing rapidly. And there may be scenarios that they never envisaged. Um, there may also be straightforward mistakes that are made, such as the example in Fukushima of the, the water cooling systems, which I've also... Um, I had extensive conversations with a Japanese engineer um, also involved in, in, in looking at the aftermath of that. Um, it's very easy to sort of blame engineers or, or, or individuals. Uh, if we look at what happened with the collapse of the banks, uh, the overriding reason seems to be complexity. And people found it very difficult you know, to deal with the complexity. There is interface management on large programs is a big issue when you're, when you're designing a whole program in one go. But a lot of the systems actually you know, evolve in, in fragments. Uh, so I think, it, I think it's a dangerous path. I think there is huge responsibility by engineers. I think engineers on the whole take that responsibility seriously. Um, that plays out very differently in different regions. But I think to go after engineers, um, you know, make that a primary route to improving resilience is, is not a future. I think you have to 
you take engineering qualifications, um, institutional qualifications like the Institution of Engineers promote, and, and really focus on making sure there are well-qualified engineers who are responsible for designs. Let's try and get a couple more questions. I mean, the notion of collapse of the banks in this context raises all sorts of other images, which uh, I think had they collapsed, these buildings would have been much more empathetic somehow. Over there. Hi, um, my name's Faraz Hassan. I work for Global Witness, but my background's um, in development planning. Um, I want to go back to your point about um, seeding the agenda for resilience. Um, and um, I want to ask, in your experience, um, have you tackled the challenge of um, advocating for a resilience approach in contexts of poverty or, or in slums, for example, which are characterized as being the most vulnerable, but where also there might be other priorities which would be perceived as more immediate, so, such as basic needs. Um, have you tackled advocating for resilience in those contexts? Can we take one more question, then we'll wrap up, okay? The gentleman right here, right in the middle, so third row. Thank you. Right, um, my name is Bharat Nepali, and I'm from Nepal. And my question is, like, uh, it is like if the Indian and the like the techno, tectonic plates uh, beneath the Indian, uh, like uh, India and China, like strikes massively, like it is predicted that there would be a massive earthquake in Nepal, like those periphery area. And so my question is, how have you been working towards this concern or issue uh, in this uh, Aru Foundation? No, take both of those. Take both of those. Um, in terms of the, the first question, uh, the um, basic needs, when people are in extreme poverty um, and they're struggling every day to meet their basic needs, uh, resilience doesn't come on the agenda. Uh, resilience is very much about building your capacities and assets to protect you against future shocks and hazards. At a very basic level, you don't save money if you've only just got enough money to survive. So in terms of a hierarchy of approaching things, um, tackling extreme poverty and meeting basic needs is step one on the pathway to resilience. Um, an investment in resilience without that um, is, is, is meaningless. Um, Kathmandu um, is a city I've visited many times um, and, and love dearly, and I've watched it grow and evolve um, over, I think, 26, 7 years since I first went there. Um, there is considerable international concern about Kathmandu uh, with recognition. There's a lot of unsafe construction, um, and it poses additional challenges because of where it's located, and therefore... Um, the supply routes into it are very constrained. So whereas when Port-au-Prince um, was devastated by the earthquake, uh, it was actually very easy to get help to, to, to um, Port-au-Prince. Um, there is a multi-donor initiative, which DFID are involved in um, a number of international NGOs, the British Red Cross, who you know, are looking at different aspects of what might happen if the worst happened, and, and how could help be got to Kathmandu. Um, it's a pioneering program, um, and I think it is really important because it's actually people thinking in advance 
about you know, where are there places that there are real challenges because thinking about these issues after the event is too late um, for a lot of people. Joe, thank you for that. Um, we're going to wind up. It's just after 8 o'clock and um, sort of the end of the evening. I want to really thank you for uh, opening up a subject in, which we think we know something about uh, in ways that really have revealed to me personally, I think to a lot of people in the room, really different dimensions uh, of both um, problems but also solutions. There was a sense of optimism in what you were saying. Bizarrely, yes. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, you, if you get a number of things right, you can actually uh, deal with some of these supposedly un- intractable sort of problems, which I thought was interesting. And coming from an engineer, optimism, optimism is very welcome. Um, thank you very much, and obviously, Richard, thank you uh, again to the Overhour Foundation for making this and many other things happen uh, at the LSE. Fran Tonkis is here who runs the city's program and has benefited from uh, many of your uh, initiatives and support. Thank you all from the LSE and elsewhere who are here, and please join me in thanking Joe for a wonderful lecture. Thank you.